Good morning, church. <laughs> what a crazy time we live in. What a crazy time Esther and Mordecai lived in. You know, as we, uh, as we try to navigate through this time, one of the things that just, and I always realize it, but it just came, has just been so reinforced is, how do we find truth? What is true? Mass? No mass. Do we want herd immunity? immunity or do we want isolation and and on and on and on and and you know in the year 2020 2020 uh precision planning uh, uh an ag uh tech company that one of their main things is a, a monitor that you can see clear what's going on in a corn planter as it's planting seeds and 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 actually gives you a visual uh, perspective of every seed that's planted, and their monitor is called 2020. And I think the year 2020, we have anything but clear vision. And yet, this morning, we see clear vision in God's Word. Thousands of years it has been attempted to be destroyed and, and Satan has attempted to destroy his people and his truth and it still stands strong and it'll stand strong today and tomorrow and the next day and the year 2120 if God has still allowed his creation or uh, even this opportunity that uh, even if we are not in person, uh, we can look into your word together. Lord, I just pray that your word would speak. What, a, what an account and what an example Esther is for each one of us. And what a warning Haman is for all of us. Lord, we are all capable of being prideful, selfish people. Only considering ourselves. And what a warning of Haman can be to us. So speak to us, speak to our hearts, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we've uh, stated, we're having the whole uh, book of Esther read, uh, the, the whole passage that we're covering each Sunday morning. Uh, it's a lot of reading, uh, a lot of story, but oh, what a beautiful story. It's I don't know, as I've been studying this and preparing this, it just, and what a story. You know, these are real people. This is a real place. This is a real time. People with emotions and desires, just like you and me. People with the same struggles. And it's interesting, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we state as we study history is the thing we know we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. You know, this is a historic event. And yet, you know, Ecclesiastes would tell us it is, was, 
and what was, is. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. History just repeats itself. It's no different today than it was then. Oh, there might be some technological differences, but man's heart is no different. And so this morning, as a, to cover these two chapters, and we, we won't begin to, to cover everything in them, I would just basically like to look, and this is an overview maybe of the whole book of Esther, the historical context, and that what was is. The same God that was working through Esther and Mordecai and Haman and that situation is the same today. And what do we see? We see really Satan's involvement in this story. And I don't be, begin to, to have the knowledge or the time to cover and to even discuss how Satan works in this, in this world. But we know that God in his sovereign plan is in control. And yet he has given Satan to, to continue in this working in this world. Isaiah 14, 14, it talks about Satan. It says, I will ascend above, and this is Satan's heart, I will send above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high, but then you will be brought down. And Jesus, is when he was teaching of the Holy Spirit, says, for the ruler of this world is coming. In other words, Satan is coming, but he has no claim on me. We could go into the, the fall of man and Satan knows that he is doomed, but he is set out to destroy as many as he can. At the, begin, at the uh, intro to, to Esther in MacArthur's study Bible, he has this paragraph introing the book of Esther. Esther could be compared to a chess game. God and Satan, as invisible players, moved real kings, queens, and nobles. When Satan put Haman into place, it was as if he announced check. God then possessioned, positioned Esther and Mordecai in, in order to put Satan into checkmate. Ever since the fall, Satan has attempted to spiritually sever God's relationship with his human creation and, and disrupt God's covenant promises with Israel. For example, Christ's line through the tribe of Judah had been murderously reduced to Joash alone, who was rescued and preserved. Later, Herod slaughtered the... Satan tempted Christ to denounce God and worship him. Peter, at Satan's insistence, tried to block Christ's journey to Calvary. And finally, Satan entered into Judas, who then betrayed Christ to the Jews and the Romans. While God was not mentioned in Esther... He was everywhere apparent as the one who opposed, foiled Satan's diabolical schemes by providential intervention. There's an unseen battle going on that we don't fully comprehend and understand, but we see the evidence throughout history. We've seen kingdoms 
and people and cults and theories to try to destruct and destroy God's plan. See, if Satan could eliminate the Jews, then God's covenant with Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you would be destroyed. But see, God in Daniel 2, 20 and 21, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Satan can never thwart God's sovereign plan. So what does, this, what does this Haman's hatred to the Jews and, and Satan's attack on the Jews mean to us today? Well, Romans in the Testament talks of how we as, as part of God's chosen people. And just as Satan was out to destroy the Jews, he's out to destroy the Christians and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, history chronicles it. Satan's attack on Jews and on Jesus and on Christians. You know, we've been studying, we look at Haman in the book of Esther. MacArthur mentioned Herod trying to destroy all the babies in Bethlehem. We know of Nero, whose reign probably put Paul to death, trying to destroy and, and scapegoat the Christians we know of Hitler and his history of trying to eliminate the Jews. Yeah, I call him across uh, an interesting uh, quote from Joseph Stalin. By May 1st, 1937, there should not be one single church left within the borders of Soviet Russia, and the idea of God will be banished from the Soviet Union as a remnant of the Middle Ages which has been used for the purpose of oppressing the working classes. Attacks on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on his people. We should not be surprised when it comes. In fact, we've probably lived, the majority of us, in a period of, of a society that has been as supportive to the gospel as ever in history, maybe. And I'm not a prophet, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think we should be surprised if our society attacks the true believers in Jesus and tries to destroy them. Just as Haman had used truce when he approached the king to say, hey, this group of people, they have a different law. They don't obey your laws. It was kind of true. Yeah, they worship God rather than the, the king as far as being a god. But they weren't disruptive. In fact, this was just, just uh, basically 32 years before this account in Esther the Jews were given the right and the encouragement to go and build the temple in Jerusalem. They were being supported by their government. 
In the book of Esther, or Ezra, is talking about the Jews going back. Then we have this period of, of, of Haman trying to destroy them. And then we go on to Nehemiah and, and the second half of Ezra, where again the government, the king, supported the Jews back and forth. I don't know where we're headed, but let's not be surprised. You know, if after this last few months, if, if our security and our hope is dependent on an election or a government or a, the stock market or our kids getting a good education, let's open our eyes. If we think that we need a supported government to, sp to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ and redemption from a life of sin and destruction, we've missed the power of the gospel. Dangerous time. A time when women meant nothing. A time when being a Jew was a time when even walking into the court where her husband was seated on the throne was a death sentence. And yet God used her in a miraculous way to save his people. It wasn't Esther it wasn't her strength and her beauty and her knowledge. In fact, I would say it was her humbleness that allowed God to use her in a mighty way. And because of her willingness for her people, God miraculous things. So let's Remember that our hope is not in our economy or our government or our education system. It is in Jesus Christ and God's sovereign will that we are his. But what about Esther and Haman? I'd just like to, for our remaining time, take a look and contrast them because Humans default, left at our own, just at our own desires and our own, our own being, we will go the way of Haman. Proud, me first. And we see Esther, humble, always considering others, deferring to others. And yet, a confidence, not in herself, but in her God, even though it's not even mentioned. I mean, Esther had every reason to be arrogant. She was one of the most women in the kingdom. She was chosen to be uh, part of the king's harem. And then finally, she was chosen to be the queen, the top woman in the country but yet 
we see in her responses to, to the people around her, and we'll look at that a little bit closer uh, in just a second. She was not arrogant. Contrast that to Haman. Haman was a proud, proud man. Totally me first. All about him. Extremely arrogant. Everybody had to answer to him. And yet, if we look, as we look at this passage where where Mordecai didn't uh, tremble before him, we see a, a huge insecurity. A real, you might say, self-esteem problem. Because when one thing went wrong, his world came apart. If we go through Esther, Esther 2.9 says, she won favor when it was talking about the, the, the eunuch that was the head of the, of the harem. 2.15, winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And 2.19, the king loved Esther, and she won grace and favor in his sight. Do you think she won the favor of everyone because of her arrogance? Do you think she won favor in the cycle beauty? Hey, there was, let's be real, there was a lot of beautiful women here. I believe it was Brady that preached from all over the kingdom, which was the known world at that time. There was something different about Esther, about her grace and humbleness. Over and over, she's deferring to Mordecai. She's deferring to the eunuch. She's, she's, whatever you say, I will do. And yet we see a quiet confidence in her. She fasted three days. Obviously, she was seeking God's sovereignty in her life. God's intervention. She knew what she had to do. And even though it was actually against the law for her to do it, she knew the historic history of a woman that stood up to the king. That woman was banished. She knew that she was risking death itself. And what did she say? If I perish, I perish. Not in a defeatist attitude of, oh, woe is me. If I go, I go. No. She was a confident that no matter how the outcome was, she knew what she had to do and she did it. Maybe she knew, and I have no doubt that she knew the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, king, we will not bow before you. And our God is able to rescue us from that fire. But if he doesn't, that's still okay. What a way to live life. Seeking God 
with a quiet confidence that the results aren't up to me. That I'm in God's hands. And how different is Haman? How different is Haman? It was all about him. All about him. He's invited to the king's banquet. He's the top man in the kingdom under the king. Probably actually more of a decision maker and had more more, uh, influence of what was going on than the king himself. Esther, the king, kind of deferring to people, not willing to make a stand on his own. He's at the top of his game, Haman is. The, king, the queen invited only the king and Haman to her banquet. And what happens when he walks by Mordecai doesn't shake in his boots that, that Haman is walking, the great Haman is walking by. It says, verse 9 says, and, and Mordecai didn't rise and tremble before him. And what happened to Haman? He, he was despondent, he was discouraged, he was angry. How could this be that this man didn't honor me? And Haman goes on and he talks about his power and his riches and his sons and his promotions and all of these things. And yet, in verse 13, he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. You think there's a little insecurity going on in Haman's life? You think there's a little uh, self-esteem problem going on in Haman's life? See, it's very interesting. And, and I'm not a psychologist. I have never, actually, I've never taken a psychology class. Somehow I got through uh, school and college without psychology. I'm not sure how that worked, but but see, pride manifests itself in two ways, and we see both of them in Haman. We see in arrogance, I'm the best, great. And we see poor self-image, poor self-esteem. Oh, woe is me. How could they do that to me? Me. Me. See, sometimes we, we confuse being humble with poor self-image and poor self-esteem. Elizabeth Elliot, I, I found a quote of hers. She was a, a missionary. Her husband was killed back and ministered to them and lived with them and shared the gospel of the hope of Jesus with them. Any message which makes the cross redundant is anti-Christian. The original sin, pride, is behind my poor self-image. For I felt that I deserved better than I got, which is exactly what Eve felt. 
So it was pride, not poor self-image, that had to go. If I'm so beautiful and lovable, what was Jesus doing up there nailed to the cross and crowned with thorns? Why all that hideous suffering for the pure Son of God? Here's why. There was no other way to deliver us from the hell of our own proud, self-loving selves. No, the bondage of self-pity and self-congratulation. Let me repeat that. There was no other way to deliver us from the hell of our own proud, self-loving selves. No other way out of the bondage bondage of self-pity and self-congratulation. How shall we take our stand beneath the cross of Jesus and continue to love the selves that put him there? How can we survey the wondrous cross and at the same time feed our pride? No, it won't work. Jesus put it simple. If you want to be my disciples, you must leave self behind. Take up the cross. See, Esther was willing. Esther put others ahead of herself. Esther put the sovereignty of God ahead of her actions. God, I'm willing, but it's up to you. If I perish, I perish. It's not about me. Not about my comfort. See, Esther was willing to do God's work. But who did the work? Who did the work? Who kept the king sleepless that he had the boring chronicles read to him to put him to sleep? Why was Mordecai's decision to warn the king of an insurgency against him that he was going to be assassinated. Why was that forgotten until the chronicles into that historical fact that night? What was is and what is was. The same God. The same God that kept the king awake. The same God that opened those chronicles, the book of chronicles, to that passage. What's our God? It's our God today. We serve the same God as Esther did. You know, if God could use Esther a little Jewish orphan girl to save his people. If God could use a young shepherd boy named David to kill a giant. If God could use a young maiden named Mary to be the mother of his son. If God could use a rough fisherman who denied that he even knew Christ 
that he even knew Jesus, in any way was associated with Jesus, could repent and in a few weeks preach a message, a sermon, that 3,000 people were saved. If God can do that, God can use you. God can use me. Not in our ability, not in our thinking that we can do something, in our humbleness, in our attitude that, God, I'm going to, I'm feeling led to do this. And if I perish, I perish. If it works, it works. If it's successful, it's successful. If not, it's not. God wants us to be willing, just as Esther. You see, pride is blind. Haman was totally blind. Haman knew the story. He knew the story of Shadrach, Reshach, and Abednego. It had probably taken place roughly 100 years before this, but, but in Babylon and Persia, they had a lot of uh, wise men that chronicled and kept historical accounts. But see, humble seeks truth and understanding. Pride is anti-Holy Spirit. Pride is anti-Holy Spirit. I can do it. Or I can't do it, maybe. The humbled heart yields and seeks the Holy Spirit. Pride distorts the truth to get its way. And humble seeks truth. Pride often manifests itself in poor self-esteem. But humble manifests itself in a confidence in God's plan for my life. Pride focuses on even if it involves hurting others. Humble focuses on others, even if it might hurt myself. And pride is never enough. But humble is content who I am in Christ. And if I perish, I perish. Because I know that I have eternity in Christ to look forward to. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this account of a historical event of real people in the book of Esther. True today as it was then. Lord, let Haman and his his evil heart that was so prideful he allowed Satan to use him to try to thwart God's plan. Lord, it's easy to fall back to being Haman. How great I am and woe is me. Lord, let us be an Esther, a quiet, humble confidence, willing to take risk for your honor and glory. Let us be filled with your spirit. And especially in this time of confusion and darkness, let us be true and straight with your word. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, see you live on internet next week. <laughs>